0: This is Transistor.fm. Hello
1: and welcome to Build Your SaaS. This is the -the behind-the-scenes story of building web apps in 2022. I'm Justin Jackson from Transistor, and today on the program, I have Dave Zorob, who is the founder, co-founder of Chartable, which was recently acquired by Spotify. Lots of great discussion in here, especially since Dave chose the venture capital route and Transistor chose the bootstrapped route, and it's just interesting to contrast those two and to talk a little bit about, yeah, the Chartable exit, the acquisition uh with Spotify and a bunch of other topics. It's a really great episode. I think you'll enjoy it. Let's get into it. Have have you started going into the Spotify office or is the megaphone office remote? Uh, I go in like once a week. Yeah, so Spotify's work from anywhere. Um, okay. So
0: they've like, you know, during the pandemic totally committed to this uh remote culture. Got it. My understanding is that it was actually pretty different prior to the pandemic. I mean, I obviously wasn't there. So um but, you know, they have this absolutely gorgeous office. I've been there. Downtown Manhattan. It's amazing. Yeah.
1: It, that, the view of, really amazing. <laughs> like, the view of the water is... I was like... It's crazy. I remember they brought me up to... I mean, I'm a country kid. I grew up in this little farm town in Alberta. <laughs> and uh, I was meeting a few people there that day. And I've only been, I had only been to New York once before that. So I remember just going into that building and they're like, you're going to have to check in. And so there's like security guards and I had to check in there. And then they bring me up to another place uh, in the elevator. And then it's like this massive waiting room. And then they're like, oh yeah. Yeah. And then they check on the computer. They're like, oh yeah, you're meeting with uh, Bill. And then you're meeting with, okay, yeah, sure. And then they just tell you to wait. And in my mind, (laughs) I'm thinking, this waiting room is the the office. Like this is this is it, you know? And yeah. like maybe there's some offices on this floor, like just like around the corner or whatever. And and then uh, I think I met with Bill first and he's like, all right, well, let's hop on the elevator. I'm like, wait, there's more floors? There's more. And he's like, Oh yeah. And so we went up and wow. Yeah. Just it's just mind-boggling to me. The scale for you, is there a little bit of culture shock? Because how big was Chartable? Well, before? yeah, for sure. Because Chartable's is like there 11, 11 people. people. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so it's obviously, regardless of like, you know, I think, you know, just to be totally clear, like part of why we ended up with Spotify is that we really felt like there was like so much alignment, both from like a vision perspective. I know this sounds cheesy, but it's like actually about people too, right? Like we were like, met a lot of people throughout the lifespan of our company. Yeah. Some of them were serious about buying our company and some of them weren't. Some of them were customers, partners, whatever. Yeah. And we're like, these people are great. Right. And so like, you know, the, there's tons of alignment on all this stuff and it's still, you know, Spotify, I think now is like 8,000 people. Wow. So, um, you know, there's a little bit of a gap in terms of numbers. Yeah. Just like a little bit. Like, you know, Almost three orders of magnitude, so, you know. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. That and, and not the going from a small team that's kind of focused on one thing. And even like within podcasting, Chartable was focusing on this very narrow piece, yeah. right? And now you're in a business that is in music, it's in producing content, it's in ads, it's like that must be so and even within because you're in the megaphone division, is that right? Yes. Yeah. So even megaphones business must be quite multifaceted. There's hosting, there's analytics, absolutely, there's man.
0: it's so uh it's really complex. Obviously it's like a huge part of Spotify and a huge part of the podcast industry. So yeah, it's certainly, you know, we've only been there for about three months, a little over three months, and uh it's absolutely like a huge learning experience. First, like um, you know, understanding how stuff works at an organization this large, yeah, right. Um, because the last time I worked at a big company was like 20 years ago, my first job out of college, right? Yeah. So, like, who were who um, you working for you then? Know, I worked at Microsoft right out of school, wow, um, in Seattle, yeah, in Redmond, um, on uh Office, so uh, that was uh 2003, right? Yeah, uh, so almost 20 years ago, and um, you know, uh, i I didn't uh make it all that long there although I had you know it was certainly an eye opening experience for like a twenty one year old to like yeah uh, see how uh software
1: gets made of that skill but did here, you, it's like it's pretty different right did you work for smaller companies between that like before charitable? I left
0: Microsoft and started a record label uh in San Francisco with some friends and I was doing some like consulting and then kind of like fell into startups um Kind of by accident, like What, what was, the, what was a the record
1: label? I, I, I think you told um, me this, but it was w- called Tell All Records.
0: Yeah, so it's like a really, it was like an art music label. We put out like super weird, uh, like experimental music, like sound collage, modern composition, okay, that sort of thing. We did okay. I think our our number one record, I mean CDs, we put out back
1: when people bought those. Uh, yeah, you know, not a bad time to have a record company.
0: Yeah, I mean, we sold 1,500 CDs of our top selling wow, record. There you, know? you go. That was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, it was a different time. Uh, I spent all my savings from Microsoft on this thing. Um, and uh, and then, yeah, I kind of stumbled into startups. At, you know, I moved to San Francisco to be with, hang out with friends Yeah, and to play music and ended up, you know, startup were in the air, even though it was like 2004 when I moved there and it was kind of the, still like that hangover from, yeah. Dot com one Yeah. And then I kind of like found my peeps, like found, you know, people who are building stuff. And um, you know, so I worked for this company called Hot or Not, so like early dating site. Yeah. Um, I worked for I started a startup uh at my first company back in 07, doing like um Facebook apps and then iOS apps, like in the dating social networking space. Yeah. Um, I worked for Angelist for a long time. So Angelist like a startup uh investor network and chat yeah, board. yeah that's how i think i first heard of you yeah it was at angelist yeah so i've worked at a few different places but angelist at the time i joined was i think i was the seventh person or something right so like, wow okay uh i was uh also you know pretty much all small companies since uh and now you know um uh we started charitable back in 2018 after leaving angelist and trying to figure out what to build and um you know we Started the podcast ourselves. I think I told this story the last time I was here, but yeah. Just for those yep. tuning in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, my co-founder Harish and I worked together at Angelist. We started this uh started together, you know, trying to figure out what to build. We started the podcast summarizing Hacker News, like the Y Combinator news board, and it just kind of took off. And we were like, What is this? Like, why is anyone listening to us? Yeah. You know? Uh,
1: and that's what led us down the wonderful rabbit hole that is podcasting. So So you and Harish. Found charitable in 2018. Actually, we got to go back a little bit because um, we're going to fix this in post, right? We're going to make it totally chronological and make it all make sense. No, no, awesome. no, no, no. This will <laughs> be a kidding. meandering uh, conversation. <laughs> I might, I might give Chris a few notes, but uh, often I just, <laughs> often I just let. Chris, our editor, he just uh, he just decides what he thinks is interesting. Yes, I also. Uh, hello,
0: Chris. Uh, we also uh, hired Chris at the Charitable Podcast back when we were doing. Oh, it. nice. It the best. But
1: yeah, Chris is awesome. <laughs> Chris always has these one sided conversations where people are talking to him, but um, uh, but he cannot respond. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh, that's nice, you know. He, but he he can't he can't say yeah. anything. So you were were you a computer guy? In the beginning, or were you I just- I
0: was a computer guy.
1: Still am. So, so because you were like a creative music kind of, you were into
0: other stuff. Only thing I've ever done for work is programming, right? So like when I was, I started doing it when I was like a really little kid. I don't like, you know, I have, I know the stories that my parents tell more than I remember it myself. I do remember like our first computer. Yeah, what was like it? One of those Radio Shack ones I hooked up to the TV. Was it a TRS-80? T-
1: a TRS, oh, nice.
0: Yeah, so like I had, ran BASIC and you know we had a cassette deck that would load
1: like i almost said apps
0: <laughs> programs onto it
1: <laughs> the funny thing about those cassettes is i i remember we had that on our vic 20 but you had to type in so much code just to get them just to, to load, load it run. off it was yeah it was like <laughs> a, and even that that idea to me even today that a cassette could have data on it is just Mind-boggling. Yeah. So it goes all the way. I mean, it's literally
0: the only thing I've ever really done. Yeah. You know, I've always been a, a computer, an indoor kid, as they say. Yeah. And like, um, you know, I was coding when I was little, you know, went to school, you know, for computer science. Like I I did like, when I was in middle school, I was writing like programming tutorials and putting them on the internet. Yeah. With my, my parents' home address. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think you can still find these <laughs> uh, with my parents' home address uh, in the text files that were the tutorials, you know, saying like, hey, <laughs> if you want to like write me a letter or, or like buy some like, I like published a, a CDR of all the programs that I like had collected for my website, which was pubesic.com. Wow. And uh, yeah, this is like 1994 or something, you know, so like a while ago. And now all those text <laughs> files are just
1: like on Usenet forever or something? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think they're still
0: around. Um, uh, my uh, good friend uh, who was, I guess my best man when I got married uh, quoted from some of the tutorials um, <laughs> uh, during his speech. Wedding, That's amazing. talking about juicy bits of code I was sharing. Wow, so, you know,
1: but you were, and you were selling these. So were you? Were you? In a-
0: yeah. So I like wrote a bunch of tutorials and then I would sell. Um, I sold like CDRs of like all the code that you know people would submit their programs to be featured on the website. Yeah, we had like a forum with a bunch of stuff that people wrote. And so, yeah, I would sell these CDRs. People would, like, send cash (laughs) to my parents' house. That Uh, is amazing. uh, Yeah. Wow. uh, And, like, I was early, like, Amazon affiliate, you know, back in, like, 1994, 95. Like, you you know, I think I made it, like, you know, for, I think I was, like, you know, in my early teens, maybe preteen. Yeah. It was, like, decent money, like a few hundred bucks here and there. I was like, this is incredible, that, you know? Like, this, that like, is incredible.
1: More money than I've ever seen. I wonder, do you think, like, is that a intuition you just always had that you wanted to make money that way? I don't
0: know about money, you know? I, I always and still, like, I don't know how much of this is, you know, learned versus just the way I'm my brain is built, but, like, I get my, I get my dopamine hits from... Making stuff, yeah. The thing I'm pretty good at making, I'm like much better at making computer stuff than I am at making other stuff. I love playing music, yes. You know, uh, I'm not the best musician in the world or anything. Yeah, I think I'm like a much better programmer than I am a musician, or much rather like product designer. Or I, mean, I don't know about designer, but product maker than musician.
1: You know, yes. Um. So, but but what what where does the Attraction towards the commerce side come from because there's lots of musicians yeah, who are fine who don't start a record label. A record label is the capitalistic <laughs> manifestation of music, and so sure. what, I mean, it's it certainly
0: w- a money losing venture. So it, it was in some ways a nonprofit, not, yeah. not necessarily <laughs> by choice. But like, um, I don't know. There was something about like wanting to put stuff in the world, right? And and like one, you know, you need to like you know, in music at the time, in particular, it felt like a retro label was a way, you know, record labels that I would follow had like very particular brands of the style of music they would release. They would support their artists with marketing and stuff. And we wanted to do that, right? So like, there were these like, small indie labels that I would totally follow and look for every new release that came out and be like, hey, is this good? Not every single one would be good. But um, there was like, there's a vibe associated with that. And so I wanted to create that sort of vibe and put that stuff in the world. Are
1: are there records that you released that are on Spotify? Um,
0: We, the artists like own the masters, right? So I think some of our artists, uh, like my good friend Liam Singer, who lives in upstate New York, he still has music on Spotify. I think his earliest records that we put out are not on there. Yeah. I don't know that he wants the world to be like hearing them right now, you know? (laughs) Um, We worked with... um, this guy, Scott Salter, who's an amazing record, uh, uh, recording engineer and producer. He has some ambient music that's still on Spotify. This woman who goes by Noveler now. She's, like, really big in the New York, like, avant-garde music scene. I haven't talked to her in, like, 20 years. We put out this record that she yeah. made with a friend, um, you know, in 2004 or something, right? But, like, uh, she's has a great music career, right? Uh, playing with yeah. uh, uh, cool ensembles and stuff.
1: It's pretty cool that you... you- had that experience. And now, in some ways, you're full circle. Now you are, you are uh, working for Spotify, which is big in the music game. Yeah. We're kind of, yeah, back in the game.
0: Yeah. And I did like, you know, I did college radio and was like the music director of my college radio station. So there is a lot of like, kind of like consonants, like in like echoes here between kind of my past interests yeah. and current interests and future interests, right? There's like music and audio and tech, right? Computers. And they're all kind of coming together, man. It's all meant to be. It's all
1: meant to be. <laughs> do, you, do you think everybody has that intuition though, to want to, to go to the entrepreneurship side of the, I think so you, you do, or you don't? I don't. I don't. What do you think? Oh, well, I'm in trouble for, uh, on Twitter for this at this very moment. So that's why I'm asking you. <laughs> <laughs> What's the trouble, man? <laughs> I mean, I'm just exploring some ideas, and I often I explore them in public, and I think I admire you for that. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the thing that's interesting it'd be good to get your take on it, but I you know it does seem that um, entrepreneurship is interesting even compared to any of those other things you mentioned music um actually, entrepreneurship is very much like those things in some ways. So anybody can pick up a guitar. Anybody can in in these days, anybody can release music. Uh, Anybody can start coding. Anybody can release tutorials on the Internet. Um, What's interesting about that compared to other things where there's a lot of gatekeepers is um, not gatekeepers. It's What's interesting about entrepreneurship compared to other competitive pursuits like the UFC or the NBA is that I can't just wake up one day and say, I want to step into the ring with Conor McGregor, right? <laughs> I can't just do that. Yeah, I can't just one day just run on the. I don't know who that is, but I assume that's a UFC person. Yeah, I'm I. This, the problem is, I use this UFC uh metaphor, the example, and now everyone thinks uh, I'm like into violent sports. Are you a UFC, which person? I'm not, I, I not <laughs> I'm not at all, but but he's a famous person
0: who's a big fighter, he's a big fighter, and you can't just go fight him. That's
1: right, and or you, you, you could maybe I, uh, well you, <laughs> you could but they wouldn't let you you know what i mean like i can't just run onto the court during an nba game and say okay i'm i'm a basketball yeah. player now and you know and but entrepreneurship and music and anybody who wants to be a public programmer person anybody yeah. can put out their shingle and say all right I'm an entrepreneur. All right. I'm a musician. Yeah. All right. I'm a, a programmer who shares stuff on the internet. And what's interesting about that is we are still competing with people at the highest caliber. So you're still competing oh, yeah. with LeBron James, um, but you are, <laughs> you're just some person off the street. And Yeah. You're just a guy. I'm in my garage. Yeah. Making websites, man. Yeah. <laughs> and... I find that fascinating, partly because the one of the things, when, when I talk about business, one of the things I kind of explore is I say, I think actually in business, you want to look at the survivors, the survivors, the people, like survivorship bias. We actually yeah. want that in business. Because statistically, the pool of people who can just put out a, sh- a shingle is infinite. Anybody on their tax return can say, well, I'm a sole proprietor and I lost yeah. $20 this year. And so if that's true, <laughs> then we, w- whenever we're, we're thinking about business and we're thinking about how to do business well, uh, we almost have to exclude that group automatically and say, well, we we can't really be thinking too. So often, you know, I'll say... Is this the controversial part where you're like
0: trying to like kind of separate a certain <sighs> kind of business from another kind of business or a certain kind of entrepreneur from others? I think that's the part that people got sensitive about. I can see how people might be sensitive, but I think it's true. If only because like, uh, you know, people's motivations and like the desired outcomes are different. It's like, are you even playing the same game? Yeah. Right? So like, Like to go with the sport metaphor, it's like, are we playing the same sport? Like if, like, if you're playing like entrepreneurship volleyball and I'm playing entrepreneurship water polo, uh, am I, you know, are we, should we really be judged by the same, uh, rules? Yes. Right. And I think that that could apply to like somebody's side project that they're doing out of total passion, zero commercial desire versus, um, you know, bootstrap business whose goal is to be profitable. Or massively profitable, yeah. Versus like a venture-backed startup whose like plan is to like lose tons of money for a while, yes, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, let's okay. Let's, um, these are like very different games. <laughs> yeah, let's let's, talk, let's dig into this a little bit. So, for you when you were starting Chartable, outside of your business objective or your um, yeah, even your philosophical objective, what was your personal objective? Like, why were you starting it? Why were you making this bet and risking your time and your energy, et cetera? What were you hoping to get out of it personally? I think that
0: uh, if I'm really honest with myself, um, there's a lot of ego involved. I have been trying to build startups for a long time and had never really gotten anywhere that I could point to and say, like, I'm super duper proud of that. I did that myself. You know, that said, like, that, that's certainly part of it and probably more than I want to admit. Another part of it is that, like, I guess I'm wired to get kicks from putting stuff on the internet, right? And making stuff that people use. Um, when I when we've stumbled upon podcasting as, like, a potential industry to explore, I was just totally shocked that the kind of tools available to creators were, you know, I hate to say this word, but I'll use it, like, primitive compared to what's available for other media. Like, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, I do, you know, I made mobile apps in the early days of the app store. And really quickly, these like very sophisticated tool- tools developed for creators to, you know, I don't know if we would have called them creators at the time, but developers yeah. to to make apps and to like, you know, figure out what's working and to grow them and all that stuff. And we were just kind of shocked.
1: Tools like App Annie? Yeah, App Annie, Flurry,
0: uh, even the early monetization networks like AdMob and stuff all had a big analytics component, yeah. you know, because like you're this app out there and you know no idea what was happening other than like you would get download numbers from Apple once a day. Yeah. Right? Yes. So even worse than what podcasting uh was when we started. Yes, right? yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um but you know quickly it got super sophisticated and I think that that helped enable you know what is you know absolutely massive app economy and we were hoping to do the same for audio with, for podcasting, with podcasting. Right.
1: So I got I like making stuff, right? That's like that's ultimately what it comes down uh, to. And I want to get more <laughs> into that too, but there's still I I got to I I just want to sit here for a second because there's uh, a, there's a, I understand the draw to want to make stuff. I understand that completely. I also understand the attraction to what seems like an opportunity. Hey, there's a wave out there that seems to be uh, growing and I want to take my surfboard and I want to paddle out and I want to try to catch that wave because it looks like a good wave. Yeah, I can understand all of that. Um, but, you know, for me, I still had to, to discuss with my spouse, you know, uh, Hey, I'm about to embark on this journey and even pre pre-tran- pre-transistor, like, why are you doing this? Why don't you just try to get another job at Microsoft and climb the ladder? And, uh, that might be better. So what what was driving you personally? Why even play this game? Why make these bets in the first place? I mean, I think ego is actually a pretty good answer. That's part of it. Yeah, I mean, ego is probably a big chunk of it, but also like, and, and this is
0: they're probably related, but like literally what what makes me happy? Mm-hmm. Right? What makes me happy is and this has always been the case since I was putting like programming tutorials on the internet, like, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah. Right making stuff that people use makes me happy, period. Yeah, And it, you get to make a lot more stuff when you start a company. <laughs> you have a much tighter loop between, hey, I have this idea that might be good and let's find out if it's good, versus like the kind of, you know, just by its nature, any larger company has more risk. You know, yeah. like it, it's risky for them to do something new. And so it has to run through all the different departments and all that stuff. Yeah, right? I remember when I joined Microsoft, I was supposed to try to fix a bug with uh, the spell checker that's like a shared component between like Outlook and Word and all the yeah. office stuff. And they are like, you have to go talk to so-and-so over in Word <laughs> he owns the dialog box that contains the spell checker settings. Yeah. It's like this guy's like life's work basically, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I'm like... I don't know that I want to be that guy. Like, I think that's a good thing to own that. to like, make sure that that dialogue box, that settings panel is really good. And I'm glad that somebody really wants to do that. Right. Uh, but for me, I wouldn't get enough kicks out of it to like refine the dialogue box for 20 years. Yes. Right. <laughs> but, the,
1: and then there's this other iteration on top of that, which is you start this record label, which is fun. You control things. You get to, find the artist, you get to do the marketing. But there was part of that that was not uh, satisfying because you say it didn't make very much money. Yeah. I mean, I spent all the money I saved up
0: uh, and um, we weren't able to do it anymore because we ran out of money, right? You know, uh, going back to the idea of the different paths, right? Side project versus bootstrap versus like a venture. And these are not the only options, but there are a few of the many available options for making something on the internet. It was not sustainable for something to just keep eating money. Yeah. And there's no way that anyone was going to invest in our art label. I didn't even think about it. Yeah. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so like, what's the goal? What's, you know, what, you know, I, I was too young to have like really thought it through. We just thought it would be something cool to do and something fun to work on with friends.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I, and I've been, I've been there and I, I, I know that feeling. I think one thing I'm just, and I think this will, as we get into this kind of funded versus bootstrap conversation, it'll be interesting, but The, again, the thing about business, if anybody can put out a shingle and then try it, which is great, I I think what you quickly learn is that you're doing this for reasons. I want to be creative. I want to have freedom. I want to have people use the things I make. I want to, you know, all those things. And it's very likely if I was independently wealthy, like if I was just a trust fund kid or something. Maybe I yeah. wouldn't start businesses because maybe if I could just create things, I would be uh, okay with it. What do you think? Do you think for you, you, if the economic incentive wasn't there, you would have been okay to just keep creating things if you knew you just had enough money? It's hard to say, right? Because so I'm not a trust fund kid, you know?
0: Uh, and so like obviously like wanting to make money is part of it. But like money is definitely not my primary motivator. It just isn't, I could have, I would have made many different decisions all throughout my career if you even want to call it that. that yeah. Uh, if money were my primary motivator. I've left great jobs uh, a bunch of times because like, uh, it wasn't, you know, I felt like I had something else to, a, a different itch to scratch. Yes. I guess we'll see. I, I, you know, I, life is long, yeah. right? Um, you know, this was an amazing outcome for me and for my team, but I'm not done yet, Right. And so the motivations are different. It's not the same as like literally thinking that this is like life or death. Obviously, it wasn't life or death. It's just making a website on the internet and trying to sell it. It felt so intense, especially the kind of the last year, year and a half of charitable's independent existence, um, really trying to fulfill what I saw as its potential. Yeah. Uh, it felt like this like, imperative. And a lot of that, you know, is economic, right. Um, But also just like deeply personal, you know, deeply, it's about my own baggage as a maker of things. And as a person existing in the world that I felt like I really had to do this. Yes. Right. Yeah. And do I feel like I still have to do it? Yeah, I do. Like I'm, I'm broken in that way. Right. Like that, uh, you know, if I were to be done, you know, I'm, uh, we have a, a long, a lot of work to do at Spotify. Yeah. Whenever that work is done, you know, I don't think I'm just going to like go chill on a beach for five years. Like I'm going to go do something else, go make something else. Right. I don't know that I could help that. Yeah. You know, even if I like thought that it was like irrational, which I think it is irrational to do, um, I'm still going to probably do it because that's just, that's how at this point that feedback loop of, of wanting to make something and seeing it made and seeing people use it and trying to make it better. And, Trying to sell it and trying to learn—that's mm-hmm. um, that's that's my that's my loop. I'm addicted to it, right? That's what I want to do. And, you,
1: and your comment about the timeline is so interesting because what, one of the things that was interesting when you and I met was we were on this path where our timelines were adjacent, and but we had <laughs> we got to see the the flux of that, right? And of course, life is still playing out. Uh, So I got to watch you make bets and you got to watch John and I make bets. And at different times, it felt like, you know, like at the beginning you had raised money and so you and you and I talked about this. It's very, it's kind of like at that point when you raise, I think you raised 1.3 initially. Is that right? Yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, almost one and a half,
0: not quite one and a half.
1: So you raised one and a half and it was like you had chosen a path because at that point, you know, getting to twenty k MRR wasn't like that. Wouldn't be good enough. Like you had to keep you had you had a different path, correct? Yeah, there was there was a point.
0: You know, we had thought that we were going to like try to bootstrap it. Bootstrap it meaning like we didn't even know what we were building. Bootstrap a company, right? When we quit our jobs at Angelus, but when we fell down the podcast rabbit hole, we just thought like, man, this opportunity is just so dang big, and it would be foolish not to be more aggressive. Uh, That was our thought at the time. Now, I will say that's not the only path. That's the path that we chose. I'm incredibly impressed by what uh, you and John have built. And there's a lot of other folks building and podcasting that have been building their own way, whether that's a venture way or uh, angel way or a self-funded way, whatever way it is, or as a side project, right? Yeah. You know, these are all totally valid paths. We chose a particular path and once we chose we had to commit yeah. right there's like, no going back right um so that certainly changed what our company's journey looks like and in the end we have an outcome that i think we can all be very happy with was it the you know absolute you know world changing 10 bazillion dollar outcome no but was it like a, a really important change for us and a great positive outcome for our team and our investors
1: yeah and that's great you know? And I'm really proud of that. Yeah. Well, you should, and you should be, I think that that's what I liked about talking to you is because that it was like, I could see, I mean, and and there was times where I could see Dave's approaches is, is probably better. Like at the beginning when John and I were suffering and, you know, John's still working a full-time <laughs> job, I had my own stuff going on, but I'm really putting all my time and energy into transistor. And so I had money stress and John had time stress. Cause now it's easy to like gloss over that in the past, but it's very likely the initial pain. <laughs> well, the initial pain it's, it's very likely we might not have made it through that. And I think, um, when I've talked to other folks who have raised money, uh, Pinar is another one who, who he's saying he bootstrapped initially WooCommerce and then everything he's done since he said, I'm never bootstrapping again because it's not fair to my family. Uh, that the idea yeah. that I would be running this thing on fumes and hoping to make it through this ring of fire unscathed is just—it's too much to ask. There was a huge cost, you know, for me personally, for
0: my, you know, my wife and my kids and stuff. Like it was like, uh, you know, to deny that I think would be, you know, dishonest, right? Mm-hmm. It was absolutely a huge cost. My wife, you know, you had mentioned talking to your spouse about, like, yeah. Before starting Transistor, that's like a big change. And we talked it through and we had some timelines. And, like, you know, given that we had a good outcome, it all makes sense. In the retrospect, it was also a great idea, right? Way to go. It absolutely could have gone a different way, right? And it would have been, it would have felt very different. Um, And even, you know, especially at the end, like going through an MA process, Mm -hmm. um, it was very stressful. And, my kids noticed, mm. right? I have two, like a six-year-old and three-year-old. They absolutely noticed, right? So I wasn't around very much, right? I was here in the
1: garage, yeah. <laughs> right? Like,
0: all the time. You know, I'd wake up at like five, do some work, go in at 6.30 and get my older daughter ready for school, walk her to school, <laughs> come back. You know, it's just like, it was like, there's some, months, some weeks and
1: months of uh, of like total grind, right? But in retrospect, totally worth do, it. Do you think raising money made the personal side, family side, less stressful because you were able to pay yourself a salary from the beginning?
0: Yeah, it definitely did. I mean, we had a kind of built-in checkpoint. I personally had one because we knew that we wanted to have a second child. Mm-hmm. And either I would have to have something that was like, I would be okay with committing to bootstrapping and saying, okay, like, hey, we, we're going to bootstrap this and this is the plan. And then we'll I'll be making extra dollars a month within you know, 18 months or whatever it is, mm-hmm. or raise money or go get a job. Yeah. Those are my options. Yeah. Right. Um, and so that's probably influenced our our decision making a little bit. Um, but um once we were able to raise, like, yeah, like having health insurance, which you know, you know, you guys don't have to worry about uh in Canada. But well, we have to
1: worry about it for John. I and and Jason, we have okay. we have John and Jason now. And so Helen and I, Helen's in the UK. I'm in Canada, and uh uh, it's a lot easier. You guys have a cover. A lot easier. <laughs> like, all, all we have to worry about for Helen and I is dental and vision. I was paying for Cobra out of pocket for my family, you know, uh,
0: from the time I left Angeles till we raised money. Uh, and that was absolutely brutal, right? It's like just totally insane. Um, and I imagine, you know, I imagine it has some impact on entrepreneurship in the US because like- Oh,
1: for sure. It's like thousands of dollars a month. You know, crazy. Joe Biden, if you're listening to this, I mean, I'm sure he'd agree. Yes. <laughs> but actually, actually... I'm sure he'd agree. Yeah. Is it doable? But yeah. <laughs> to the, to those on the other side of the house, if you're listening to this, I, I think yeah. <laughs> that the greatest gift you could give entrepreneurship, free market economy, like the United States, is health insurance. Because you want to give people some sort of safety net. And I... Absolutely. Even starting a business was definitely a massive risk, especially since I've had businesses fail. But if, if I knew that, if I didn't know that I, if one of my kids got sick, I'd be able to go to the hospital and it wouldn't cost me $30,000 or $100,000 or whatever. I don't think I would have started a business because it's too big of a risk.
0: Yeah. Super. It is like a a huge impediment. And like, for us, like I, I basically was paying for like Cobra, which is a like continuation of like your previous employer's health insurance, yeah. and it was just crazy expensive. And it's it was the only way I had to make it work, right? It's like there's really no other option, and absolutely factored into you know my like very scary spreadsheet of impending doom of like whether I would have to like <laughs> uh, get a job or like give up, you know? Um, and it won't be the same next time, right? Like you know, we were fortunate enough to have a, a good enough outcome that um, if I were to do the irrational thing and to try down at some point in the very distant, yeah. hopefully very distant future, ask my wife, she hopes it's also <laughs> very distant, you know, that it wouldn't be as much of a burden. Right. Yeah. Um, but it'd still be hard to, you know, it's still just like a massive cost, uh, and a scary thing, you know, with a family to think that like, well, just cause like dad has a really weird brain yeah. and, he really likes making things on the internet in this very particular way. And so he's going to do this crazy thing and it's going to impact you. Like, I don't know, it's pretty weird, man. I don't know I know that I'm... When I frame it that way, I'm like, wow, like, is that really the right thing to do? I don't know. Yeah.
1: But- <laughs> I mean, it's so interesting to think about the, in, in terms of a bat, because one thing I was just thinking about while you were speaking is in some ways you pre-acquisition and me right now, I think we do have a similar anxiety, which is most of my potential net worth is still locked up in this company. And I think the benefit that profitable bootstrapped companies have is that if they are doing well, um, founders can take more money off the table each year just through distributions. But like the way i describe it now is especially since this you know whatever transistor is it's it's a it's a i think it's a success for a bootstrap company but it came to me Absolutely. in my 40s and so i say i'm i am poor in terms of net worth <laughs> but but wealthy in terms of income right so it's nice having a high yeah. income but there's still this feeling of like if this goes away I still have that same anxiety of like uh, I haven't taken enough off the table for this to be fine. Now every yeah. year that we keep going, that becomes less and less of a concern. But the selling your company, you're basically pulling forward all you're pulling forward years and years of revenue in the future, and you're getting it now, and you're able to put it away. Right? Yep. Yep. And it's
0: a trade-off, right? I mean, uh, you know, for us, uh, it was absolutely the right thing to do. And, like, we really couldn't be happier uh, about where we ended up and um, and our timing and feeling like we have the ability to, like, kind of go even kind of bigger with our, like, vision for, like, publisher tools, right? Um, as part of Spotify. Uh, but, yeah, there, you know, you want to talk to anxiety, man? I mean, I was I was a mess, you know. Um, and that that kind of existential dread is is not there in the same way. But now it's like, well, we did this thing, like we have to kind of make good on all of our promises to customers and all the things that we talked about. like we, we've, we have all these ideas. we've been doing this for four plus years now. I think our I guess our four-year anniversary of Charter will be like uh, next week or something. Oh, nice. Um, and we have a lot of work to do. And it's just, it's very different to get that work done. And in the larger environment, there's like kind of, it's almost like there's more at stake. It's not like there's more at stake for me, mm-hmm. like personally, like if I screw up, then like my entire income is going to be destroyed and my family will be ruined. Um, but uh, you know, Spotify has really big ambitions for <laughs> its podcast business uh, and we're uh, hoping to play a very large part of that, and so we have to do that, right? It's it's work. It's work to be done. Um, and so, I've kind of traded one kind of anxiety for another. I'll absolutely take that trade. Yeah. Uh, and now my anxiety is, can we like make good on on our promises? Make good on on the vision? Yeah. And uh, you know, so far so good. It's still early days, right? Um, but uh, it's definitely just trading. And this is probably just another. Way that I'm wired is to worry about something. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm worried about.
1: Okay, can we actually follow through? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Can you, Can you tell me a bit about that transition? When I talk to John about an acquisition, his feeling is like, ah. N- neither of us has worked for a big company, but we've both worked yeah. for companies of 100, 200 people, and we we like this way more. But every once in a while, I have a thought of like. Maybe we could, see, this is the fantasy, but I, I think maybe, maybe this is delusional, but maybe we could, John, maybe we could go to somewhere like Amazon or Spotify or Apple and really kick ass at that level. That would be sort of interesting. Um, yep. How was the transition for you and, you know, your team of being like, you're this little unit That can execute at a certain level, and you're scrappy, and you're you know you're doing all the things. Is that transition difficult going from small company to big company? Do you feel more empowered? Like do you just feel like you've just got a bunch more gas in your tank, and now, or they've given you like rocket boosters? Like what's the feeling inside of a bigger company?
0: Yeah, it's definitely a different feeling. For me, I think there's trade offs, right? Like the the total impacts we can have. Um, If we're able to execute, I mean, we are able to execute (laughs) because we're very capable. Uh, But, uh, you know, the impacts we can have as part of Spotify is absolutely much larger. Spotify has these crazy ambitions and they've been very public about how they want, how big they want their ad business to be uh, and how important podcasting is to that bet, right? And um, so if you fast forward a few years as like, um, you know, they execute on that, they, we execute on that plan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the impact is just ginormous. And what charitable was this small company, we were absolutely limited by our resources. We could only do what we could do with our budget and with our, you know, headcount. And mm-hmm. uh, we're absolutely getting, you know, we have two new hires starting next week. We have uh, other open roles. Like, it's really exciting to like get a little bit of that rocket fuel, right? Yeah. And the trade-off is that I'm not in charge anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, I am not the CEO of
1: Spotify. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and
0: uh, you know, so like we're we're simultaneously like trying to like step on the gas in terms of like what we can do as charitable, but also figure out what it means to exist within this larger company, and you know, we're we're one piece of like a very big puzzle. Yeah, right. Uh, so there's there's kind of like there's there's pluses and minuses. There's like things that are harder, things that are easier. Yeah. Uh, and just the existential dread being gone that's quite valuable to me. Yeah, uh, yeah. Honestly, better for my team, better for my family. It's like I don't, you know, uh don't have to like uh wake up every morning or in the middle of the night uh with that like sweat, right? You're sleeping better? Oh yeah. Oh good. <laughs> uh because I I mean, you know, uh based on where I was at the end, um my
1: sleep was extremely poor. Yeah. Uh, and so uh Any advice? Any advice for sleep? <laughs> I don't know. If you think you want it from me? <laughs> I, I mean I sleep quite well right now. I as soon as Transit well, good for you, man. As, as soon as awesome. Transistor was that's an interesting. I think it's one reason I'm so excited about this idea of you know, the market provides most of the the, the momentum for a company, and yeah. riding the right wave is so important because the other things I tried, I was able to get to a a place where, you know, this is making enough money for my family to live, and it's great. But what didn't go away was staying up all night, thinking about ideas. What do I got to launch next? What do I got to do next? Once Transistor was working, I slept way better. I still yeah. sometimes wake up at four in the morning, but it's not with dread. It's more like excitement. It's like, oh, wow, yeah, like, sure. I just get fired up. I'm wondering if you have any advice for other companies that might get acquired in the future. How could What can they do now to prepare... To make that due diligence time less of a nightmare, or is it just you just got to go through it? It's just always going to be difficult. You can definitely prepare. You know, for me, I'm not a I'm
0: not a uh, trained business person. Yeah, uh, and so the uh, financial side of it was something that I had to prepare, kind of like during pr- during you know yeah. in prep for the process and during the process. So all that kind of like really boring stuff to me, very boring. Yeah, uh, stuff like um, having a solid um, you know, solid accounting, bookkeeping, yeah. revenue model, tax stuff, making sure all that stuff is super clean and ready to, to share. Mm-hmm. It's really important, right? Yeah. I spent many hours on it when I would have rather been working on products, uh, kind of cause I was like cramming it all into a very short time. Right. Not that we hadn't like, you know, had some books or whatever, but it like wasn't, it didn't feel as important, you know, to me when I was like flying on my own. So get a bookkeeper, get a really good bookkeeper and pay attention. This is totally, like, way in the weeds, but, like, for example, what you count as, like, cost of goods sold versus uh, R&D expense. That stuff matters, right, when, when people are figuring out how you fit into their financial models. What do you count as
1: cost of goods sold with the SaaS business?
0: Um, like, hosting. Uh, not all the hosting. Like, hosting for, like, you know, the kind of paid portion of the site okay. versus, like, the marketing site is, um, you know, marketing expense, Right. Um, so all these kinds of classifications, like your kind of financial partners might not necessarily know your business. They don't know your business as well as you do. Yeah. Right. So like knowing what to what to put where, you know, some of it is like very much cut and dry. This is what the IRS says, or this is what, I, you know, the government says. But a lot of it is like, well, what does it mean for your business? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you use this particular piece of software or uh, this other service to support your customers? Right. Or to acquire new customers. And then, like understanding the levers of the business, like how you know, you seem to know a lot about SEO, mm-hmm, for example. Mm-hmm, Justin, mm-hmm. you do a great job understanding how like how you can model growth in the future and telling that story. Yeah. um, is a, is a big piece. And we certainly had our our own models, but with the kind of level of rigor that uh, potential acquirers might want to see is more than you would use internally. Yeah, right. Um, having something to guide a product roadmap is very different than having something to to present to a finance team, yes,
1: uh, or to an investor, even right. Uh, you know the level of rigor is different. How, how did you how did you make that process more equal? Because you know Spotify is a massive organization. You're a small little team. Did you? You just had some a lawyer on your side, some finance people on your side. Yeah, we had a great team. We had a great lawyer. We hired an investment
0: banker, um, this guy Yale Yi, um, and who's great and who's been behind a lot of podcast deals. Okay, interesting. Who really helped us understand the process. You know, we we had all these different partners that supported us, and they would come on come on the calls uh, when needed. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, if you're the CEO, it's mostly on you. Yeah. Right. Uh, you're kind of driving the process. It's definitely it's kind of hard to to speak about in the abstract, but um, it you know there's there's plenty of good resources out there. Um, and you know for me it was definitely something that I learned so much by doing. I, I feel like I went to business school uh, in like a really short time. Yeah, span yeah, learned a lot, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: I can see that being stressful. Yeah, that is an understatement of the century for me. Yeah. <laughs> um. So let's talk about podcasting. Um. First, I want to know. What are you excited about doing with chartable? What's this next kind of phase look like? And then second, let's talk about the podcast industry in general, where you think it's going. Um, you know, what's what are the next five, 10 years? So let's let's start with chartable. What are you excited about building now with chartable? Yeah. Um
0: the big things we're doing as part of Spotify is just doubling down on on Building tools for publishers to help them understand and grow audience, mm-hmm. um, and so that's how we fit into the Spotify uh, picture. And so, um, we're really excited about um, leveraging like, microphone data, leveraging Spotify data to give publishers a better understanding of what's happening with their shows, who's in their audience, uh, and and you know tools to you know we have these smart links to smart promos, like web to podcast attribution, podcast to podcast attribution, yeah. that folks use for marketing their podcast every day. We want to like really make those just like unstoppable tools, mm-hmm. um, uh, and um, we think that leveraging some of the Spotify data to do that will, will be great. I don't know how much detail I can go to, but uh, we're we're planning on improving them.
1: <laughs> will it continue to be agnostic in terms of also providing data from Apple? And is that the plan? I can't speak to like what Apple is going to let us do or not do, but our plan is to is to keep uh,
0: the tool as agnostic as it can be and to offer it to all podcasters even if you don't host on megaphone yeah but you know you can imagine that uh spotify has data for what happens on spotify um so that like um our insights into what happens within the spotify world um will be available to folks who like you know publish their podcast to spotify and we'll have like extra you know extra tools for folks that um Uh, the audience that that happens on Spotify. This
1: this opens up a whole new spectrum of possibility for you because Spotify has demographic data that you've never been able to access before, right? So uh, you've got, you know, what they're listening to, what country they're in, uh, age. Like, there's a bunch of other... Yep. uh, You must be really excited about that possibility.
0: We're really excited, right? And it's certainly a process. Like, we want to make sure that we honor of Chartables, like, contractual commitments to our publishers about and to listeners about privacy. And Spotify has, like, really strong privacy frameworks, like, really intense uh, processes, right? So there's a lot to do. I wouldn't say that we're done with it, but, you know, we've spent a lot of the first, like, chunk of our time within Spotify, like, kind of working through those legal processes uh, to make sure that, you know, everything is in the clear. But I'm so excited about it, right? Because, like, we're a data company um, and, and love putting, you know, giving... Uh, podcasters data that'll
1: help them yeah uh brother you know, shows and um we're getting close man <laughs> can you, can you tell me a quick like what's a, an example story of this like is it that i'm going to have a podcast and i'm going to want to know which show i should do a promo swap with and so you're going to be able to better better identify the shows that I should do a promo swap with? Like, it's, you're going to surface that kind of information? That's that's one potential story. Like, I don't know, um,
0: you know, the, in the short term, the goal is just to, like, make things kind of, like, quicker and easier for folks. Like, like for example, like, we were part of Megaphone. We can make, like, a lot of Chartable customers and Megaphone customers. Yeah. We can make the uh, kind of, like, tight integration between Chartable and Megaphone that will just make people's day-to-day, like, the marketing audience, development people that have to live yeah. in Chartable and Megaphone made their lives really easy. And that's what we're shipping in the short term. Got it. Right. It's just like kind of like uh, improving the flows. Like Chartable, as an independent company, we have like so many steps to get anything done. Yeah. And, you know, for the folks that are within, you know, the kind of Spotify fold, we can make their their day-to-day much better. But yes, you can imagine in the longer term, um, uh, offering folks like, yeah, better ways to grow their audience and, and leveraging demographic data to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And uh, you know we have to like finish finish our processes so like before I can promise anything. But yeah, um, your story is not far off. Like ultimately, our job is to help people understand and grow. Yeah, right. And promo is just such a big part of growing a show. Yeah. And whether it's promo within your own network, which is like a huge use case. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, or promo across networks, um, across shows. And it doesn't. And it's not just like these gigantic networks that are doing this. It's like even. Shows getting a modest number of downloads can benefit from promo rights. And we want to make sure that we're serving those folks too.
1: Yeah. What, uh, to, to end, what do you think are some things about the podcast industry that I'm missing? <laughs> what do you think I'm... That you're missing. What, what, what am I not seeing as as? Indie bootstrapper Justin, what what am I not seeing that maybe I should be thinking about? I don't know how much of your. I think there's a big international story mm. um, about podcasting, which
0: is not like a hidden secret or anything. Chartable was very U.S. centric. Um, Spotify is a global company, yeah, and has global ambitions, right? And so it's 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 cool to um, you know now that we have more resources and are part of this bigger team to think about what does it mean to serve. Um, audiences and to serve publishers that are outside our like very us centric um bubble and uh I think the the growth story for international markets is just like amazing yeah right and there's all kinds of challenges to serve them right there's language challenges there's like is the ad market there like you know all these different things right mm-hmm. um, but as far as something I'm really excited about and that would have been super hard for us uh and maybe hard for you guys as a bootstrap company like international I think absolute mega trend yeah. over the next like, five to 10 years, right? And we will be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah,
1: that's interesting, because now you have this perspective with Spotify. I always think about the the shrouded ceiling. Like, we know the glass ceiling you can see above you, but the shrouded ceiling is like, there's yeah. just all this world of possibility that you don't even see. And I think the exciting thing for you would be, again, you get to go into this company and go, oh, well, we've got all this data, uh, and we've we've got all this experience, and yeah, that's fascinating. Well, Dave, I'm going to let you go. Thanks so much. Okay. For- I'm. I wish we could keep going. Uh, I got to jump to. I want to just say
0: thank you uh, for having me on. Congrats to you and John for our, uh, all the amazing progress that you've made and the, the amazing things that you've built. And uh, looking forward to doing it again soon. man. Well,
1: congrats to you. I'm I'm really uh, pleased for you and your team. I I just so glad that. Um, you were able to have that exit. Couldn't have happened to nicer people in the industry. So congrats. It's Very kind of you to say. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks. Talk to you later. All right. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for listening. And thanks to our Patreon supporters. We have Jason Charnes, Mitchell Davis, Marcel Fale, Alex Payne, Bill Kondo, Anton Zorin, Harris-Kenny, Oleg Kulig, Ethan Gunderson, Ward Sandler, Russell Brown, Noah Prale, Colin Gray, Austin Loveless, Michael Sitver, Paul Jarvis and Jack Ellis, Dan Buddha, Darby Frey, Adam Duvander, Dave Junta, and Kyle Fox from GetRewardful.com. See you next time.